Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, that is Paul, in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming kingdom, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And in Galatians 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these two you once walked when you were living in them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're continuing in our series on putting down the sins that we put up with. As Kenny said earlier, those sins that we tend to minimize and we tend to ignore in our life, because they seem small in the light of larger sins that we grapple with. And they seem to be so common that they've almost earned a respectability. In other words, that's not so bad. It's not at least this. It's a small thing. But sin is sin. And self-control, or a lack thereof, is one of the sins that Jesus Christ would address by us giving, as it were, liege or, or, or opening the valve to the fulfillment or self-fulfillment or self-indulgement of the passions and the desires that we have. The Apostle Paul will address self-control as being one of the fruits of the Spirit. And he will address elsewhere that it's because of a lack of self-control that we begin to allow these other things to come in to our life. So this morning, I want to tell you, in just a few moments, I want to show you three little vignettes or three little stories that have to do with self-control. Now, last week, I mentioned that there are about ten books that I try to read every year. And one of those books that I count as a whole book in seven uh, sections is the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And if you look at those books, there's one that is my favorite out of all of them, and it's called The Silver Chair. And I mentioned, oh, I guess a month or so ago, that my second favorite character, not counting Aslan the lion, who represents God, but my second favorite character is Reepicheep the Mouse. But my first favorite character is Puddleglum. Puddleglum. Now, Puddleglum is a marsh wiggle. 
and he has webbed hands and webbed feet, and he talks a little funny. His hair is all kind of seagrassy, wiry. He's kind of got a pale skin. He eats raw fish, but he's really a, he, or boiled fish and frogs. He's, he's really kind of an Eeyore sort of fellow, but he always, he always comes through, particularly when the kids that he's journeying with to go free the prince find themselves in a pinch, and they are in a pinch. So my favorite character in my favorite book, The Silver Chair, and my favorite scene is when the witch of the underland, they are under, their underland, overland is above them with the sun and where Aslan is and where all Narnians, you know, live happily. But now they find themselves with the witch and the underland people away from the sun and they're systematically, because of some powder that she's thrown onto her, her grill, they're being enchanted. And she, um, she says to them, uh, there is no overland. There is no sun. There is no Narnia. There is no Aslan. And the children's head, as well as the marsh wiggle puddle glum, began to drop, and they become sleepier and sleepier through this enchanting smell. And she begins to talk of them of personal comforts. Don't you just want to rest on big, soft, puffy pillows and just sleep and sleep and sleep? And then our hero, Puddleglum. C.S. Lewis writes that he did something that was very, very difficult and it took a huge amount of strength to do. He took his foot and he stepped on the blazing fire and he stamped out the fire, the grill, that was burning this. And it says that at that moment, three things happened. The first thing was, is that there was the smell of burnt marsh wiggle that filled the room. And that's not an enchanting smell at all. So the kids, their eyes come open and their heads begin to raise. Secondly, the witch was so upset that she yells at Puddleglum and she says, you touch my fire again and I will turn that muddy water in your veins to fire. And then the third thing that happened is, thirdly, the pain itself made Puddle Glum's head for a moment perfectly clear. And he knew exactly what he really thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. We can become as it were, entranced. And we can begin to practice a very small amount. We can practice little self-control or a lack of self-control. And we can become increasingly enchanted by these things that we're pursuing from a lack of self-control until God, by His grace, will give us a wake-up call that our indulgences have actually become slavery. And our, our, our initial taste for something has become an addiction. And so in the pursuit, as it were, of self-gratification, we suddenly are shocked to find ourselves in want of self-control. The tension is, is we still have the desire to indulge ourselves, but 
God is pulling us, and he may often use a good shock of pain to wake us up from the enchantment. I want to show you now. Oh, and by the way, here's a good definition for self-control. Self-control is the moderation, the moderation of legitimate things. Food, alcohol, uh, I'm not advocating drunkenness, certainly not, but moderation, all things in moderation. So self-control is the moderation of legitimate things, and it's abstaining from sinful things. So it's moderation for things that are good, legitimate, but it's saying no, a very firm no, to things that are sinful. That's self-control. One of the individuals this morning that we're going to look at, let's look at the short story of Solomon. And if you have a Bible, you can look to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. I think the reason that I'm so... I, some of my favorite stories, I mentioned last week, one of my favorite books is uh, Le Miserable with uh, Jean Valjean, the escaped or the, the freed convict and his adventures. But it has a lot to do with the theme of self-control, but in the form of self-sacrifice. Willing to say no to a desire, or say no to personal safety, or no to personal comfort, as a form of self-sacrifice, is also a visual demonstration of self-control. Solomon, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8, he was not willing, he understood self-control, but he wasn't willing to practice or employ self-sacrifice. Now, I'm not going to read all of 1 Kings 11, but in this short story, what you find is you find a man that it tells us here in verse 3 that he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. All right, now, how many women did he have in his life? Now, he had 1,100, well, that's, that's 1,000. I'm sorry. He had a thousand women in his life. And if you think about even the, the, just the nights of a year, that would be like a different gal that he would be having dinner with for a number of years here. And so he had that many women in his life, but that wasn't the problem. It wasn't simply women or the passions and the lust of the flesh. It's taught, God is very clear here as it tells us he had, not, he had told the people of Israel to not intermarriage with any of those outside of Israel for this reason. Verse 2, For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. If you look down to verse 4, it said, His heart was not wholly true to the Lord. Verse 5, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. And, and he, later he would make an idol and he would make sacrifices. Verse 6, Solomon did not wholly follow the Lord. Verse, not, uh, verse 8, he made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Now, this is the one who wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and in all likelihood he wrote the Song of Solomon. But in Proverbs 25, verse 28, he wrote, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Solomon wrote that. 
Solomon was granted by God the gift of wisdom. And we don't know if he is the epitome of wisdom in that he was the wisest man then and the wisest man to ever live. Most of us attribute that he was probably the wisest man, the wisest man that would ever live. But regardless, he was, a, he was given by God wisdom such that he could say that if you don't have self-control, if you don't have self-control, then it's like a city that is entered into, it's broken into, something gets inside of the city. I think of John Bunyan's uh, uh, work on uh, the city of Mansoul. And basically the walls were so strong and so mighty that there was no way you could conquer Mansoul as a city. Man's soul. You couldn't get a man or woman from the outside. You had to get on the inside and then unlock the gate to let the enemy come in. Or, as Solomon would write, the city has to be broken into and then from the inside the walls begin to deteriorate. The soft spots are exploited and every temptation then can come in. Every temptation. It wasn't just women as it were and it wasn't just the desires of even the flesh but he began, it says, he worshipped their idols. He began to build idols. He began to follow, as it were, their idols because God was misplaced in his heart. So he could write about self-control. He could understand self-control. He could wisely uh, tell us about self-control. And yet it was beyond him. And he would, he would, like a city whose walls are broken down, he would lose the kingdom. When his son Rehoboam would come to the throne, the kingdom would be divided in northern Israel and in southern Israel. He would lose everything that he accomplished. He would lose. He would go down in the record books not simply as the wisest man, but the man whose heart went far from God. The man that, that God himself named, that he went far from God. Now, I would simply say that I've got to leave this because it shows the lack of self-control in an, in, an, in an individual. But Solomon, even at the point of his death, had never moved away from those things that he had hooked his heart into. You see, it wasn't simply the, the practice of, 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 of something. It wasn't just the practice of taking a wife. But it was his heart that had moved from God. You see that language in 1 Kings 11. In other words, his heart was far from God, and therefore it was close to these idols. And so that's how the city wall has begun taken, is that if our hearts love for something else, if our hearts love shifts and it moves from God, and it's not wholly given over to God, if the Lord fades in beauty for another beauty, in self-control, the walls begin to come down. And it won't just be one thing, guys. It'll be a lot of things. It won't be just overeating. It may be overeating plus something else. Because you see, it's not self-control. It's not simply the thing or the issue. It's the, it's the whole heart. And so we can become vulnerable to a plethora of things. Lack of self-control. Secondly, I want you to see the desire for self-control 
in Felix's story, and this is over in Acts uh, 24, as read earlier. Isn't it interesting? Now, I'm a preacher, and so typically preachers form a three-point sermon. But isn't it interesting that Paul's three points here are he's talking about righteousness, he's talking about self-control, and he's talking about the judgment to come. Why would he address to Felix, knowing his audience, why would he say self-control? Philip is a procurator. He's under the king. He's over this given uh, geographical area. Paul comes to him after a riot, and he's been falsely accused. But Felix and his wife, Drusilla, are very interested in hearing more about Paul and the way, which is Christianity. And so Paul, when he comes to Felix, very specifically addresses righteousness, those things that we need to do to be right with God. What is a what is a life that is right with God look like? And I'm sure he included the gospel, saying it's Jesus Christ. And then he goes into the application portion of his sermon, which is self-control, to say that unless your heart is with God through Christ, you're going to struggle in this area of self-control. And if you struggle in this area of self-control, because your heart is not with the Lord, you don't find Him and His ways to be more compelling and you're following your own heart and your own desires and your own idols, it's going to end at judgment when you stand before God. And Felix grew very uncomfortable, and yet he would continue to hear him. And I submit to you this. I submit to you that Felix and his wife, Drusilla, Drusilla was his third wife. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, who was the king or the ruler over that part of Jerusalem that we read about in Luke that died a terrible death, you know, falling down with worms coming out of his stomach and all that kind of stuff. And she was the current, she was the sister of King Agrippa or Herod Agrippa number two that we're going to read about later in Acts. Not this morning, we're not going to read about. But she was Jewish. And she was ravishingly beautiful, we're told. And we're told that Felix, in order to get her to leave her legitimate husband to come and to marry him, even used the black arts to do it. And that's all just kind of historic, non-biblical. But Felix had gotten to the point that he was struggling with his own overindulgences, that he could see himself as a leader being overcome by those things, and his pursuit of self-gratification was no longer satisfying, but enslaving. And what he wanted was what we want. We want really both. I want to be able to satisfy my indulgences, but I'm not too much. I don't want to go overboard. I want self-control. Um, we get a, uh, a, a, a magazine called Men's Journal, and it was one of those things where you've earned so many points, you get to have these many magazines, and or you could have a magazine of your choice, and I think it was the only one that uh, might possibly offer something to read. And so we, we checked it, and we get that. And I'm looking in the table of contacts of Men's Journal, and it's talking about, you know, the best beer to drink, oh, the best beer to drink, and the, you know, the best scotch on the market. And then over there it's talking about how to use kettlebells or how to get in the pool and use big stones that you carry across the 
And I'm thinking, isn't that very interesting that on the one hand, it's talking about whipping your body into shape as a strong athlete and the exercises to use. And then over here, it's talking about these ways to indulge. And what we want is we want self-control. If you find an elixir right now with our self-indulgent culture where you can say, take this pill and you won't eat too much. You can still eat and enjoy all those flavors, but not too much if you take this pill. You'd make a fortune. We would buy it. Why? Because we want that vow. But Felix, Paul was pointing to the way that you find it and that it's in Jesus Christ. I, um, I, now, I don't want you to think that I, I listen to her all the time. I didn't even know she sang. I didn't know who Pink was. But I was, I was listening to the radio, and I heard this song, and I thought, that's it. That's it. Here are just a couple of, of lines from her song, Sober. When it's good, then it's good. It's so good till it goes bad, till you're trying to find the you that you once had. I have heard myself cry never again, broken down in agony, just trying to find a friend. I'm safe up high, nothing can touch me. But why do I feel this party's over? No pain inside, you're like perfection. But how do I feel this good, sober? She said, I started to indulge, but then I started to lose me. I started to lose me. But I want this because it makes me feel good and it makes me feel high and it makes me feel better about myself and I'm, I'm able to cope, but I'm starting, it's starting now. I don't have a choice anymore. It's enslaving me. So how do I feel this good sober? How do I get self-control? I lack it. I have so little of it in my life. How do I get self-control? Now right now, this may not be the issue for you, but I suspect that we all, in some degree this morning, struggle with it. Remember, it may be in something that we've gone overboard and we need to moderate. Something really, really good. It may be something that we need to say no to. But I pray, I pray before we end in just a few more minutes, I pray that you begin... I pray, and I, I don't want it to be me. I don't want guilt. But I want God to bring something to mind for you. Bring something to mind. Something that you, you feel that God is inviting you to partner with Him to begin to moderate or to say no to. Make it very personal. Make that your takeaway this morning. But how do you do it? We look and we see the greatest one who possessed it was Jesus Christ. He said in John 5:19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What, um, what Jesus was saying, it seems really striking. Because what he's saying is, I don't do anything on my own. If you were to ask Jesus, um, how are you doing? He might say, 
what do you mean, how am I doing? Well, how are you doing life? How's your life? He would probably say, well, I don't live life on my own. I don't live, I don't face every day doing what I want to do. Well, well, what does that look like? And he would begin to talk about the father. He'd say, my father is doing this, and my father does that, and my father is doing this. And you can imagine if you were at a restaurant or a cafe, and you were sitting there, and Jesus was talking to someone behind you, and they asked, or somebody was behind you, and they asked that person, so, hey, how's it going today? Well, my father did this, and my father did that, and my father... My father is asking me to come home by three, and then my father is giving me a wonderful opportunity over here. Yeah, yeah, but what about you? Oh, well, it's not really about me. It's about my father. And You might think that guy had a mental problem. But not so with Jesus, because Jesus' heart was so totally given over to God because the communion and the intimacy and the love that he had with the Father was saying life is not worth facing or living without intimate communion with the Father. And that was what allowed him in the garden to say no. It was what when the cup that was held before him, he was able to say, I, will, I, I don't want it. I don't, I don't want to face this horrible, agonizing separation and death but I'm willing to say yes, this incredible self-control and strength and say, not my will be done, but your will be done. It was what allowed him in the desert to face temptation, and it was what allowed him on the cross to face the very people that were crucifying him and saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. At the very moment, you would think that he would lose all self-control and say, I'm going to scorch you guys. He held on the cross and said, forgive those guys even because they do not even know what they're, what they're doing. Not to excuse them, but to say, Father, I am here in accordance with your will. And he had such self-control. Well, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to end this morning but Paul in Colossians, he talks, it was one of the passages that I read, and he offers a warning, and it's a warning to us as well to say, look, don't simply run in your pursuit of self-control over whatever that issue is in your life. Don't simply run to rules and regulations. Don't say it's about holier living. No, that's in spiritual discipline. That's great, but that's only a part of it. Don't say that it's simply saying, no, do not, do not, do not, do not. Don't say that it's simply an accountability group that you, you call someone and say, I drank too much again. Don't, it's not, those things in and of themselves can be helpful, but if they're isolated, they won't last. It may cause you to look holier on the outside, but again, because it's not simply what's happening on the outside of the city, it's what's happening on the inside of the city. The city's been broken into, and the walls have come tumbling down. We've got now to get again back to the heart. Puddleglum would, as he begins to come out of this enchanting enchantment, as it were, Puddleglum looks at the witch 
and he looks at the children who are now awake, and he said, you know what, we're down here, and we're in the dark, but we won't be long. I don't know that we'll ever find our way out of this underland, but we're going to leave here, and we're going to go in pursuit of Aslan, and we're going to live like Narnians, even, even though we're in this dark land, until we find Narnia. And we're going to pursue, and we're going to go, because I'd rather live in pursuit of him than to live with you and all of your dark comforts. And that's what it comes about. It's not choosing simply to stop doing something in excess and to start doing it in moderation. Or it's not simply saying no to something, but it's saying yes once again for Jesus to be my love. To say, it's not simply saying no, but it's saying yes to him. It's saying yes to him who when he was given the opportunity to pursue the the pleasure, as it were, of saving his life, he said no. That he would die in order to gain our life. On this table is the gospel. It represents a man who said, it's not about my will being done. It's about God's will. And God's will is that I should suffer and die in your place that he might have you forever. Jesus said yes to that so that he was willing to face death on our behalf. On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed that very night. He took bread and he broke it and he said, eat this bread in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood shed for you and the washing away, the remission of all sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Or, as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim my death on your behalf. As we meditate on what he did for us, how strong, how how controlled he was in order to gain us, then this, this little bit of bread and this little bit of wine can be used by God as it reflects what he did for us. And we meditate on that. It can strengthen our resolve to live for him to live, as it were, as Narnians in pursuit of Aslan, to continue to to live and to follow the God where our true heart's love lies. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you set these elements aside and that they would strengthen my resolve to live for you. I don't have it in my own strength. Father, I fall so many times. I, I don't have in my own flesh, the ability to say no. But Father, you can feed us from this table with even Jesus Christ's resolve, with his control over his self and his desire to follow you, his great and intimate Father. Father, give us that desire. Give us that self-control. Feed us. Feed us this morning that we might have that strength. And we ask it in Jesus' name.